Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus uh, Deep Space 9, the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcatcher. Take a screenshot and email the screenshot and your question to us at b5bsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question live on the show. We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, please hit us up again at email at b5bsds9 at gmail.com. So this is uh, Bob from Cascadia. I've got Matt from the Southland on the line, and we are here to uh, do Babylon 5 versus Deep Space Nine. Today we're talking about the episode Sky Full of Stars, um, Season 1, Episode 8 of Babylon 5. It aired on the 16th of March, 1994. And we're talking about the Season 1 finale of Deep Space Nine, Episode 20, Hands of the Prophets, which aired on the 20th of June, 1993. How are you doing today, Matt? Well, we had some, uh, some very deep episodes to cover today. <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of information to uh, to cover. So I might as well just go and get started, honestly, because there's a lot to cover in these two episodes. You want to walk us through the A plot of uh, Sky Full of Stars? Yeah, starting with Sky Full of Stars, we've got uh, there are two men aboard Babylon Five. They're possibly from a secret Earth Gov organization. They're only identified as Knights One and Two. They kidnap some Claire and put them into this VR simulation of an empty Babylon 5, and they have complete control over what Sinclair sees. Like at one point, they're able to get like a, a Garibaldi to show up, and in, anything they want, they can manipulate Sinclair's brain to see. The, the whole point of them putting him in the VR is to prove that a decade before, he actually betrayed Earth to the Mimbari during that lost 24 hours that he mentioned in a previous episode. This all happened at Battle of the Line at the end of the Earth-Mimbari War. Yeah, yeah, great. And just uh, for folks uh, who have forgotten at the Battle of the Line, it's the last ditch effort to hold the line and defend Earth from the invading Minbari forces who have just utterly overwhelmed uh, Earth uh, forces. And in this sort of last stand, everybody in Sinclair's squadron gets killed. And then he attempts to ram a Minbari cruiser and blocks out. He wakes up 24 hours later, the Minbari have surrendered uh, and the war is over and uh, Earth is left with a lot of questions. For the B-plot, we could also say that uh, questions are also uh, coming up in the show about both 
what Dr. Franklin, the station's physician and Ambassador Delenn, the Minbari ambassador to Babylon 5 did during the Earth Minbari War. So we've kind of got a three-part mystery or three-part series of questions about these different characters and their wartime activities. Uh, so Matt, I wanted to kind of frame a few questions here for you. Uh, in an early scene, we have Garibaldi reading a copy of Universe Today, which uh, seems to be the 23rd century equivalent of that awful newspaper we're all familiar with, USA Today. And it has uh, the following three headlines. Psycor, an election triangle. Is there something living in hyperspace? And San Diego is still considered too radioactive for occupancy. Did you have uh, any thoughts um, about those headlines? Did any, anything come to mind for you? Psychor and election triangle. I mean, we just had the election, correct? So yeah, yeah. And are they saying that Psychor influenced it somehow? Is that what they're saying? You, you can you can see the text of that story a little bit, and it says that the Psychor have attracted controversy because they're supposed to be a non-political organization or non-partisan organization, uh-huh. but they endorsed uh, Vice President Clark during the recent presidential election, who was the vice president to President Santiago, who won re-election in that election. So there's controversies come, come up about Psycor possibly violating their charter and endorsing the vice president. Huh. Okay. Is there something living in hyperspace? Is that is that alluding to whatever uh, Catherine saw on that planet that was like moving so quickly uh i i don't Maybe. think so because she wasn't in she wasn't really in hyperspace then right that's true yeah but i mean it went it, it like it was quick i don't i don't know i i honestly have no clue what that's referring to and then san diego is still considered too radioactive rogancy well i guess earth is not like what we expect it to be it's kind of are, yeah. are we ever gonna go are we ever gonna go down to earth and see what it looks like right now do you know um maybe maybe not I, do you do you actually want me to answer that? I kind of feel like I shouldn't. Nah, don't answer it then. That's yeah. fine. Yeah, if it's a spoilerish, don't. But I, I I feel like that alone right there tells me that Earth is not like the Earth we think of now, or it's definitely not the Earth from Star Trek. Where the backstory on that, and I I I I think this was established like as an aside in the TV movie, but maybe I'm wrong. But the backstory is is that there was a nuclear there was a nuclear sneak attack on San Diego like a century before and it wiped out the city. Actually, I think where it's established is if you remember in the first regular episode in Midnight on the Firing Line, when Sinclair is getting very angry at Jakar about the Narn doing a sneak attack on um, the Centauri, he kind of he kind of has this whole spiel about how, you know, we're very familiar with sneak attacks. And I think he mentions both Pearl Harbor, you know, which started American involvement in World War II. And then he also mentions the uh, the nuclear terrorist bombing of San Diego from a century before. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't even catch him looking at the newspaper, honestly. So, wow, that's a lot of information for world building there just to one thing you did catch, which we can uh, give you a lot, uh, give you some credit for, was you, you're once again proved right about um, airlock executions or airlocks as a method for corpse disposal. Although we do have the kind of interesting point that Garibaldi uh, says that you know the station gravity won't let a corpse float very far away from the station itself. Yeah, Sinclair's been missing for like a couple of hours, and Garibaldi's already like check the airlock, see if he's, his dead body's floating out on its side. I'm like, really? <laughs> 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 all right 
So I've, I've got a few questions here, but I was kind of curious, what, what questions did the episode leave you with after? Because we get, we learn a little more about Sinclair's, uh, what happened to him in the missing 24 hours at the bottle of uh, the Battle of the Line, but there's still a lot that's unclear, or a lot we don't know. So like, what are the kind of pressing questions for you right now after what this episode shows us? Well, the Grey Council, trying to understand still what that really is. Uh, Sinclair's involvement with it during that missing 24-hour time period. Uh, Delenn obviously knows more than she's always let on, which has been a common theme among all these episodes, mm-hmm. is that she knows more than she's letting on. Uh, Sinclair flat out like lies to her about knowing uh, about what he experienced within the virtual reality thing that he uh, that he actually regained his memories while in there. You know what was this, what was the purpose in taking him? I, I, there's so many questions about Sinclair. Like I don't have answers to right now. And so uh, were you, were you pretty sure that the, the body of Minbari that Sinclair appeared before were the great council? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't know what else it would be. They were in a, he's in the center. They're in a circle. There's all of them. And uh, then one of them mentioned, one of them says something about the great council. Mm-hmm. Some, someone says something about it, like uses the name. Yeah, it was just it's just interesting that like on the one hand they've been setting it up and like we've learned that we've already learned that Delenn is a member of the Grey Council, right? Mm-hmm. Like from when she when she and Lanier first meet, we learned that. But on the other hand, like the episode still in some ways wants to keep it uncertain, right? Because it ends with Sinclair speculating that it was the Grey Council, but he's not totally sure. Although, ironically, the credits roll, and in the credits, the the actors from the Grey Council are credited as, like, Grey Council number one, Grey Council number two. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I didn't catch that. That's funny. Yeah, I, I I just I have no idea, like, what, the, what role Sinclair plays in all of this, and there's just something weird going on there that I, you know, you can't put your finger on. It's very mystical, in a sense, of... Uh, yeah, that, those were my main questions. Yeah, yeah. And so just to sort of reiterate on the questions you laid out, we're sort of, yeah, you, you asked, like, why did the Minbari take Sinclair and bother to interrogate him? It's also kind of worth asking, what did they learn from that interrogation and that torture? Um, and as a side note, it's sort of interesting. Usually, well, I, I won't say that, but it, it is interesting that we kind of have a very casual and cavalier reference to the Minbari using torture against Sinclair, right? Like that's, you know, one would hope that would be a pretty big, big uh, no-go for interstellar conflict, but, you know, they, they catch him and they almost immediately start torturing him. So that's a, that's a kind of interesting facet to the Minbari culture. Um, we're still in the dark about why the Minbari surrendered to Earth after winning at the Battle of the Line. Um, we're still in doubt about why Delenn con- conceals her membership in the Grey Council. And then, yeah, we also have that mysterious Minbari who's willing to kill Sinclair if he remembers the lost 24 hours. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot that's still up in the air. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot been unanswered at this point. And, I mean, I don't know if we're going to get I, 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 at this point, I don't know if we're going to get answers in the next couple of episodes or not, but one thing about Babylon 5 that I have noticed is they totally don't wait for the payoff. It seems like they, you get answers to your questions a lot sooner than you would in Star Trek. That makes sense. Does that... Hmm. Or at least, or at least, or at least like, you, get, you, you get questions answered, but then on top of that, you get more questions. 
Yeah, I, I can have a hard time keeping it straight with like where we're at now versus where I'm also at and watching it. Can you think yep. of an example of, I, I mean, I guess this episode itself is is a, is a big example of it because we do learn that like Sinclair gets brought aboard this Minbari cruiser and interrogated and appears before the Great Council. So that that is a lot of answers to questions we had. But yeah. right now we know, yeah, this, I mean, this is, that's the really the, the main example is, okay, I didn't think we'd have an answer to this until like way down the road. But mm-hmm. here we are, we're only on episode eight of the, of the series and we're already getting answers to what was going on during that 24 hour period where he, you know, he basically vanished. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. That's a good point. I, I do think like there, there's still going to be some interesting revelations in season one of Babylon five, but I do think that the pace of the season is going to slow down pretty soon. And we're going to get really into episodic science fiction plots with not as much attention to these sort of driving mysteries about the Earthman Bari war or about the Vorlon. So in, in that sense, yeah, I would just say, just, just prepare yourself. Cause you know, we're about to, we're about to get into the, the stretch of the Babylon five season one that feels like a Star Trek season more than anything else. And then one other thing I wanted to briefly frame about this episode is it, you know, we, we, we've talked about all the questions and the doubts we have thus far about like the sort of central mysteries of the show, but this episode, because it has the two nights, uh, the two agents for this uh, secret government agency possibly put Sinclair into this VR simulation of Babylon 5. It kind of engages this old trope of science fiction where science fiction will raise like what, you know, what you might call Cartesian doubt or like the possibilities of radical skepticism where one cannot trust one's own senses one cannot trust one's own sense of self. And this was a sort of mode of questioning really pioneered by the uh, French philosopher René Descartes, although Descartes eventually does contain that skepticism by, you know, making an argument for and believing in the existence of God as like a sort of stabilizing force for his perceptions. But uh, Descartes is the philosopher who really kind of raises this radical doubt about like, what can you know? What can you trust of your senses? How do you even know that you, you are what you think you are? And you see that you see this kind of doubt come up in a lot of science fiction, right? Like Philip K. Dick novels oftentimes deal with Cartesian doubt. You might think about in uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep or in Blade Runner, like there's questions about whether or not Deckard is, you know, quote, real or a replicant. Um, you know, you can think about the movie and the short story, Total Recall. Also, you also get that really buttoned here in the final lines that Night 2 has to Sinclair in this episode, where he, he tells him there's something in my head. It says, maybe you're still inside, meaning maybe you're still inside the simulation. So I just thought that was an interesting and important sci-fi trope for us to note. Did you check out the VR setup that they had but that was an intense looking like machine they had that, that i like feel bad for sinclair like, yeah really bad yeah well it had <laughs> yeah it had real like torture chair overtones to it right and it was it was also interesting that there were two chairs and that night two also goes into one you kind of you the episode kind of gives you the feeling that not only is night two like really abusing sinclair's psyche by putting him in, in this thing but i mean in a certain sense he, it seems like he's also really abusing his own psyche by like jacking into this thing 
I wonder if that's something we'll revisit later on, like as the seasons go on, the whole virtual reality aspect. If there's something there with that, but I, it was it was it was interesting. It's also interesting to me too, like how easily like criminals get on Babylon Five and manage to find some way to find like set up all their stuff. Have you noticed that that's like a common thing in the last eight episodes? I've noticed is that if anybody gets on Babylon Five, once they're there, they can usually find a room, a power source, <laughs> and whatever other little like weapons or utensils or things they need to, to move on with their plot. But there's almost like too much space on Babylon 5 and not enough people to really keep up with what's going on. Uh, five miles long, man. Five miles long. Yeah, five um, miles long. I mean, I guess it's, it's just huge. I, I, I will say, though, that these guys have the advantage of possibly having, you know, a gut, some sort of government organization, like, you know, giving them travel papers, giving them equipment. And the impression I got, which I, I didn't track this very closely, but the impression I got was that they were having to like assemble the virtual reality chairs. I mean, this isn't necessarily like obviously weapons technology, first of all. And then second of all, you get the sense that they're kind of assembling it in their guest quarters. So in that sense, it made it a little bit more plausible, I guess. Well, it, it wasn't just their guest quarters. They were in some kind of like secured area. Did you know they had to bribe the security guard or uh, pay the security guard's debt to uh, get access to it? And he didn't know what they were doing. They were keeping, remember, because he keeps, uh, yeah. he had to use security access to get into the room. And then okay. Okay. here's Sinclair yelling or screaming next door. And he's like, what's going on there? Oh, that's our, <laughs> that's our commander getting, getting tortured. Oh, okay. Uh, it was, I'm I'm appreciative of the writers for actually putting that scene in there, though. So we know, okay, they didn't just uh, magically find a room and start, you know, setting stuff up. But uh, yeah, it seems like a common a common problem on on Babylon Five. Did you want to go think, ahead and pivot to Hands of the Prophet? So this is the season one finale of Deep Space Nine. Uh, Matt, you want to walk us through the A plot? Yeah, you've got the uh, Orthodox Bajoran religious leader Win and Ma Adami. Excuse me, Win Adami. Who stages protest against school teacher Kiko O'Brien's neglect of the spiritual aspects of the wormhole prophets, causing Cisco to attempt a political alliance with more liberal Bajoran religious leader Barel Antos, the favorite to be elected next Kai to replace the lost Opeka. Yeah, yeah. And then in the B plot, we have Miles O'Brien and his Bajoran assistant Neela are investigating the disappearance of one of O'Brien's uh, most critical tools, as well as the disappearance of the engineering ensign Aquina. And believe it or not, both of these plots will tie together somehow. <laughs> you could have foreseen that they would they, they would intertwine. <laughs> so I don't know. One of the things I thought was really funny about this was, I mean, obviously this is kind of staging like, you know, the sort of debate that I think is still a little hot now, although it was very hot in the 90s about in high school science classes, did you teach like an evolutionist understanding or a scientific understanding of like how the universe came about, how the planet Earth formed, how what chemical and biological processes happen to permit the you know the rise and evolution of life on earth or should you teach um a creationist understanding of you know like god created the universe in seven in six days rested on the seventh that sort of stuff so that you know the, the allegory here is very obvious but I, I just did think it was kind of funny that it's the controversy in this episode is actually a lot more narrow than the kind of controversy between like the scientific account of life's development and the cosmos's development versus the religious account of creation it's actually like both win and keiko can agree on there is a there is a wormhole 
there are beings in the wormhole called prophets. The beings in the wormhole called the prophets created the wormhole, right? Like, so in, a, in, a, in an interesting sense, like both Wynn and Keiko are actually both creationists. Like they both, you know, they both agree that the wormhole was created by these beings. They're just arguing over how to actually to characterize the wormhole and how to actually characterize the beings within the wormhole. So I, I just thought that was a kind of funny funny uh, reduction of the evolution versus creationist debate just to rhetoric around two different theories of creationism in a sense. Well, let me say from the start of the episode though, uh, when, when Adami just decides to like walk up in uh, Kiko's classroom and just start spouting her, 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 uh, her beliefs, that's why you need really good school administrators. Just telling you right now. <laughs> so you're saying Cisco does not fulfill the role of a good school administrator? No, not no. He is not a very good like principal in that sense. They probably need to hire someone. Someone need to be in there. I'm saying this as someone in that you know in that kind of position. You really need somebody to uh, make sure that when Adami doesn't get through the doors to interrupt your class and cause all kind of chaos. Uh, but yeah, that that was that first scene was hilarious to me. Just thinking like you could just walk up in a classroom and start doing that. I'm sure there have been that's happened in the real world at some point, but it, it was so odd. Yeah, but in, in in the post Columbine era, uh, it's a lot harder for people to just walk into school classrooms and you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. Uh, and then as we move further, you get this one thing. You've got Kiko and uh, Kira standing next to each other. And they're talking to to Cisco about what's going on with the school, and Kira's suggestion is to teach both or just have a separate school for like the Bajoran kids to attend that that's just further proof. I think that, that Karen Nears needs to go on. Like that was just odd. Like that's just, I mean, you're going to, you're like segregate the kids based on this one thing that you're teaching. Well, I mean, in, you know, in, in like real life, that is partially, I think been the solution to this. I mean, it's not a total solution, obviously that, you know, um, obviously a lot of Christian kids still go to school in the U S but part of the solution has just been, there's been a rise in like religious schools, at least I don't, I don't actually know what the, the stats are about when they grow, but you know, like the more devout, uh, Christian or, you know, not just Christian, more, more devout Jewish or more de devout, um, Islamic parents will tend to, you know, send their kids to schools that like, you know, are explicitly built around those beliefs. So okay, let's look at let's look at the number of kids and students at the school. Okay, there were like what, twelve total, <laughs> maybe. I, did, set up I, I didn't count, but I mean, I, I think it is. I think it is no like the majority of the kids are Bajoran, and you oh. know when they when when sort of leads the walkout, like you know I think it's just Jake and three other little kids are left. Yeah. It was just it was just an odd suggestion to me. I, I don't understand why they would think that that's the first that would be the first step. Just okay, let's just uh, have a separate school for Bajoran kids. We'll let them learn their thing over here. Obviously, Kiko can't uh, can't teach these children what they need to learn to, to grow and be successful. I I don't know. I, it it was just odd to me. Yeah. Well, I did, I did think it was kind of interesting too how much like Wynn's protest was kind of modeled on like you know, tactics from both the labor movement and the civil rights movement, right? Like she, well, I mean, like you say, she first starts by showing up in Keiko's class, but after that, she and the kids sort of form almost a picket line in front of the school, and then she leads them on a walkout. And then later we have a bunch of uh, 
members of the, the Bajoran militia who serve on the station or, you know, doing what's called what's called in like labor union speak a, a sick out where they're, you know, all in a coordinated fashion calling in sick. And uh, it's sort of interesting that, you know, we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of rhetoric about pluralism and tolerance and mutual coexistence from Cisco. But as uh, soon as his Bajoran um, his Bajoran workers start, um, you know, expressing their conscience and, you know, opting to call in sick, he, he gets really militant and, you know, yells at Kira that if they don't they don't report to duty, he's going to fire them, basically. So I just thought it was kind of an interesting thing where on the one hand, you have Cisco like purporting to be this very sort of you know, inclusive pluralists, but on the other hand, as soon as the as soon as the Bajorans start to protest uh, the smooth running of the station, he just goes ballistic and is immediately like threatening to fire people. Yeah, I think he was just annoyed because when he went to uh, Bajor to meet with uh, the names escaping me, hold on, Vedic Barile. Yeah, when he went to meet Barile, uh, it, it things didn't really go his way. I think he expected that to just kind of you know him meeting with him to help work out the, the situation. Uh, to improve the situation at the station, but Burrell didn't would would not agree to work with Cisco because he thought that if the uh, it would hurt his chances of being elected. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was interesting, like how how politic Burrell was about you know I can be a better friend to you once I'm Kai, and <laughs> it, it was sort of interesting, like how what a negative view I, it it seemed like the show and Cisco took of like. But like in some way, both sides of the Bajoran religious system, right? Because like, you know, Wynn is clearly portrayed as like, you know, a villain, an opportunist, um, you know, somebody who's taking something that might not have been a problem and turning it into a problem. But on the other hand, you have Burrile being treated as this sort of like, you know, opportunistic political creature. And I, you know, it's just interesting because, you know, I think you can sort of see Win and Barile's points. I don't. I don't think their points are crazy. So it's kind of interesting how how down, in some sense, the show is on both of, both of those characters. Yeah, uh, the writer actually he he based the whole the Jordan social system, the way it's set up on fifteenth and sixteenth century Catholicism. So when like the Pope was much more of like a political figure than he is today, the different orders all uh, the different orders all like vied to have all their candidates installed as pope so I mean, I'm, I'm not an, I think that's I'm not an with expert us. on contemporary politics of the church but i mean my understanding is that's still kind of how the pope is selected like there's still a pretty intense political factional uh contest uh about who will be the pontiff i you know obviously like the selection of the pope now is a lot has a lot less significance for world politics than it did a few centuries ago. Yeah, I, I think those political divisions within the church are still very live when the College of Cardinals meets to select a new pope. Um, you did you did have a good point in the notes um, about how this this was sort of a, at variance with the usual way that um, you have season finales. Uh, most Next Generation and DS9 and Voyager seasons, not all, but most tend to end on cliffhangers and you know you'll have the finale be part one and then the, the next season's premiere be part two is the usual way but we sort of get off that formula here yeah and i think originally too uh, i was doing some reading they said that this was supposed to be a crossover episode with next gen oh, um, interesting but, but that didn't happen so i mean it, it was it was an, it's an okay season finale i mean you you, you get a, a 
an interesting conclusion, but it doesn't it doesn't rank up there with like the, the cliffhanger season finales that just leave you waiting and like salivating for more. Yeah, I was gonna say it does it is sort of an interesting like companion piece to emissary, right? Like there hasn't there really hasn't been that much discourse about the Bajoran religion in in season one. The only exceptions to that really are emissary and then this episode and i mean i guess you would also have to you'd have to throw in battle lines that episode we covered where kaiopaka gets stranded on the moon but even that you know that episode is about okaka but it's not very much about like bajoran religion per se or bajoran religious politics and so it, it in that way the these two sort of episodes sort of button season one of ds9 and you do have this interesting um you know this sort of interesting continuation or of the emissary's concerns. Um, and, you know, indeed, like you kind of see that in Cisco's final line of the show, which, you know, is what closes the episode is he has this kind of optimistic note about he thinks they've made some progress on DS9 after all. You could uh, compare this to also might be like the neutral zone, which is the season one finale of the next gen. And that isn't a cliffhanger either, but it does set up future plot lines right like it shows like the romulans returning to an active role in uh, beta quadrant politics and it you know it teases the borg whereas here you sort of introduce win and beryl who while they're not going to be like main characters are going to be like important characters going forward in the show so in that sense it kind of reminded me of how season one of next gen wrapped up with the neutral zone yeah, and going back to what I was talking about with Babylon 5, uh, okay, we're 20 episodes into DS9 at this point, okay, mm-hmm. and now we're coming back to the emissary thing, whereas in, in B5, we're in episode 8, we're already getting questions, to, answers to questions to things that were mentioned just a few episodes behind. You know, it, 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 it's, DS9 is such a slow burn, I guess, as of right yeah. now. I, I don't know in the future, like uh, you mentioned later on, that's kind of going to go away. But right now, DS9 is much more of a slow burn, whereas B- B5 is a uh, kind of flying through plot pretty quickly. Well, and it, it's also, even though Babylon, like I said, Babylon 5 will slow down um, in the back half of season one, it, it, I think that is kind of a testament to how Straczynski wrote it, which is to say he, uh, he, I think he had very clear, my understanding is he had very clear outlines of all five seasons and where he wanted the show to go. Like he was aiming for five seasons. He had some contingency plans of characters went away or if they got, if they got canceled early, things like that. But he, he had a, he had a, he had a strong general outline of where he wanted the show to go. And so he was, you know, like, like you say, he was moving towards it somewhat aggressively early in season one, whereas DS9 is more on the model of next gen or Voyager initially where it's, you know, it has a, it has a situation, but it doesn't necessarily have a plot arc. Like it's not, I don't really think it's clear at all that the writers, you know, know where they're going after this episode. Like, you know, they don't necessarily have like in deep, in deep plans for Wynn or Beryl. Yeah, and we kind of saw that with how quickly they wrote out Opaka, right? Like, because they introduce Opaka in the pilot, and you think she's going to be a big deal, and then she's only in the one other episode that writes her off. Well, I mean, they have Straczynski's outline. Couldn't they just have used it? <laughs> controversial, controversial. <laughs> I mean, Straczynski has, I believe Straczynski has said that 
he thinks his outlines that he pitched to Paramount for Babylon 5 did influence what the executives wanted from Deep Space Nine, but he doesn't think the writers of DS9 saw his materials for Babylon 5. And I think he said that in interviews. On Thirst Watch, we're looking at O'Brien is actually thirsting after uh, new Bajoran engineer Neela, but he is restraining himself, which is a good thing. Uh, I guess this is good for when he's not, you know, since he was buying meat sticks for Kiko the rest of the episode. Quark at one point says he needs to bring in twice as many Dabo girls to handle traffic from the Orthodox Bajorans, which is ugh, gross. Yeah, yeah. And then not, not much thirst on Babylon 5 uh, this uh, week. Garibaldi was too busy searching for Sinclair to be thirsty. He's too busy, too busy checking the airlocks for his dead commander. <laughs> and then uh, was there was there anything that came out uh, on Econ Watch this week? Honestly, no. Nothing really came to pass this week. Well, I guess we do we do learn about the gambling habit of the security guard, the two knights, uh, Saborn, and we kind of we kind of get some insight into like that there are strict limits on what Babylon Five military personnel can do in terms of going to the casino, which is sort of interesting and not something that ever comes up on DS9, even though, you know, we do see Starfleet personnel at Quark's gambling. But yeah, that, that would have been an interesting plot, potentially, if you'd seen like a Starfleet person at Quark's, you know, get get in hot to him and Quark trying to blackmail him. That is true. And also we learn, I guess, if you want to look at uh, from an economic standpoint, the, the security guard actually owed, uh, was in debt 15,000 credits. And Garibaldi mentions that that's there's no way he could like make that in a week. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Trying try, try to make a connection here with the money. I just, yeah, I, I don't, I don't quite have a, a grasp on how much their their actual credit is worth at this point. But we'll figure it out eventually. <laughs> well, and then on Deep State Watch, I just wanted to flag that we get a big. Uh, RFK assassination energy from Wynn and Neela's failed plot to uh, to murder Burial. And uh, if you're interested in the RFK assassination and various various conspiracies around it, the woman in the polka dot uh, dress, MK Ultra, stuff like that, uh, there's a really interesting podcast from a couple of years ago. It's just a, one season of a podcast called the RFK Tapes that uh, came out from the guys who do the Crime Town podcast, which is a great podcast. Uh, great true crime and sort of urban history podcast. So I, I strongly recommend Crime Town and uh, the RFK Tapes spinoff specifically. I've listened to all of them too. I highly recommend it. Definitely something you should listen to after you listen to this podcast. Great, great. So next week we're going to record maybe a quick episode where we talk a little bit more about season one DS9 and we may put that out on the public feed or we may save that one only for subscribers we haven't really decided next uh yet and then after that we will be moving on to the three-part season two premiere of ds9 so we'll just do all three episodes in one because it's not a very good season premiere and we'll also move on to episode nine of babylon five with which is called death walker so uh if we we may release that season one ds9 retrospective for everyone and then we will definitely be back with the season two premiere of ds9 and death walker from babylon 5 thanks for joining me today matt all right thanks for listening guys appreciate it and remember you can follow us on twitter at b 
B5VSDS9. Uh, for show notes, subscribe to our Substack, B5VSDS9.substack.com. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or another podcatcher. Take a screenshot, email that screenshot to us with your question at b5vsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question on the show. Uh, We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, email us at b5vsds9 at gmail.com.